0: You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ.
1: Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. Now, if patients in one area have more diagnoses than those in another, use more care, but have similar mortality rates, you'd be forgiven for thinking they were simply sicker, but that the extra care they were receiving must be good and making them better. Not so, says John Wemberg, as having more diagnoses is associated with using healthcare more, and not with being sicker. Later, he explains how this flawed logic is harmfully perpetuating overdiagnosis and variation in care.
2: The intensity with which one encounters physicians creates illness in the sense that patients who are in these high-intensity regions appear sicker. We have adjustments then made for the payment mechanisms, so they get more money. They can then go out and hire more doctors, build more hospital beds, and so this is part of this dynamic that's creating variation.
1: The shocking inadequacies at the Mid Staffordshire Hospital, recently revealed by the Francis Report, have raised many questions about the nurses and doctors involved, not least of all how these professionals didn't care enough about patients to look after them better. Last week, we convened another of the BMJ's roundtables. In this case, our panel discussed the issue of compassion in the health service, how to make patients feel better cared for and how to respond when they do not. As always, the full recording is published on the BMJ podcast page and came in at around 40 minutes, so here are some of the highlights. The lack of time allocated to care for each patient has been stressed by Francis and our panel agreed. Here's Sean O'Brien, head of the Patient Experience Group at Musgrove Park Hospital talking about how patients are disempowered to demand more attention.
3: I do feel that we're almost treated sometimes like a an inconvenience. It's quite easy if you're confident to be able to challenge those around you, but there is a massive massive number of people that come into the hospitals who if you tell them the the sun is green, they're going to believe you because you wear a uniform and a badge. I don't think we make enough time for those people. You know, it seems that everybody in a ward, is is, is is everything's rush, 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 and we don't seem to have time to connect. And that's the most important thing, is to be able to connect with the people who are there, and remember that they're there, and that they're probably very scared, confused, you know, it's in unfamiliar surroundings. Even when I've challenged ward staff in the past, you know, you can see it's not that they don't want to, they just don't have the time.
1: So that's a point of view of patients, and a great deal of the blame has been laid at the feet of nurses. But Peter Carter, he's Chief Executive and General Secretary of the Royal College of Nursing, said the problem of time was frustrating those providing care as much as those receiving it.
4: In a neonatal unit, it tends to be one nurse to three or four infants. In most elderly care settings, it's one nurse to nine or ten patients. We are warehousing older people in wards that are unable to cope. Yes, occasionally you will find a nurse that's completely lost her way, um, her values have gone, those things have to be addressed. But what I actually think is for most nurses, they want to do a good job, but the current system is preventing them from doing it. One of the things that I think has been lost is the primacy, if you like, of the ward sister. Um, with much more control and authority, perhaps two not very popular words, but I think that is about having a sense of, look, this is untenable, and being able to go up the line and say, no, we are not prepared to put more and more beds into this ward because it simply makes it impossible to nurse. So what you end up with are people feeling disempowered, Uh, feeling that they're unable to do uh, anything about it. And that's why you get in some of these hospitals that have very poor standards a huge turnover because there's no buy-in.
1: It boils down to priorities. Anthony Silverstone, a doctor at University College Hospital.
4: If we have trouble with our doctors, we have to look at ourselves and see how we got to this point. And I'm afraid it's to do with priorities. If you care enough about doctors caring and nurses caring, then create an environment where they can do it. But don't reward them for being slick managers or being smart all the time. Have a sense of what you want from your doctors and nurses. And that's how it was. It was much simpler. But this is still important. A sense of professionalism.
1: Has that lack of prioritisation Anthony was excised about changed the fundamental ethos of the NHS? Here's Jocelyn Cornwell, director of the Point of Care programme at the King's Fund. There is a sort of fantasy, I think, which is a constantly said thing, which is
0: everybody in the health service cares. I I don't think it's a really helpful thing to think that because what I think is that we have to think about creating environments in which it's possible to care. I think that there's some very good research that shows that the ethos of care in teams determines how people in those teams act and behave towards patients. So a really caring person in a very poor team will find it almost impossible to deliver good care. And a pretty unmotivated person in a team with a great ethos of care will find themselves... Providing good care? I do see that I'm not the only person
1: that's involved in, a, in somebody getting better. That when I feel like I am flying in my clinical work, we're, we're working together as a team. That the, the nursing staff, the allied professions are all on the same page. And, and our patient really knows that direction of travel as well. Joanne Watson, a consultant diabetologist at Musgrove Park Hospital in Concurrence. So, after the Francis report, what next? Jocelyn Cornwell again. I personally think there's a real problem with the fact that
0: exactly the same people are, as it were, running the system as were there at national level, at strategic health authority level, and that they are, as it were, charged with changing the culture, and I think that they themselves have helped to create that culture. And so... What I worry about now is, will staff feel, will they have the confidence to speak up and to be more open if they don't see real change in the layers above them? Because I don't think that if I was counselling people on the shop floor, as it were, as to whether or not they should whistleblow or speak up, I don't think I'd feel confident at the moment in the way that they would be treated everywhere. But the future isn't all bleak. I actually do feel very optimistic because I think that, I think there are parallels with what happened in patient safety. So 15 years ago, nobody talked about harm to patient or error, and now they do. They talk about it a lot. There's good research. We know some of the tools and techniques that are needed. We know how to change systems. And it's not perfect everywhere, but it's kind of, we're on the right road. I think the attention to patients' experience and to the care of the patient is at least five or ten years behind the safety agenda. I think Francis is a moment along that road. I'm old enough to have been here for a long time and to know that there have been many other investigations that people expected to change the world, and they didn't. But I think the kind of drumbeat is getting stronger. And I think that we are beginning to see the world being a little bit turned upside down in that everywhere around this table, we're all agreed that it's what happens at the point of care that matters and it's staff experience that needs attention as well. And I think that's
1: incredibly positive, actually. Those were a few of the highlights from the round table. If you'd like to hear the full version, it's up as a separate podcast on the podcast page. Now, here's John Wemberg. Professor of Community and Family Medicine at the Dartmouth Institute in the US on how a flawed assumption is making us believe patients are sicker and need more care than they really do. So very simply put, your article shows that the more patients see physicians, the the more diagnoses they're likely to have. Um, This was in Medicare patients, we should say, in the US, who were those over 65, and you looked at around 5 million of them. Firstly, why does it matter that the number of diagnoses is, is not a good proxy for morbidity and mortality? What are the direct consequences of that?
2: The problem is that they're being used in many different contexts to attempt to achieve comparisons between one population of patients and another for regulatory purposes. For example, how much we pay providers, for questions of research, are outcomes better in regions with lots of care versus regions with little care, and also for uh, adjusting quality measures like in Dr. Foster in the UK and in this country, the Medicare quality data on mortality following, say, acute heart attacks or congestive heart failure. So there's a lot of uh, use being made now uh, with these adjusters that are based on how many diagnoses are recorded in what we call administrative databases or claims databases which in the united states are used for for payment purposes in some european countries are used for paying to insurance companies and so we have an issue here that's that's not just a, a theoretic or academic issue it's a, it's a real question about uh, methodology but it's, it's a question from methodology to about p- public policy and how we should really uh, be paying for healthcare uh, on a regional basis
1: mm. Yes, in the UK we've had um, a lot of discussion of standardised mortality rates for for hospitals which would be affected by this kind of methodology and also where our our resources go in in the clinical commissioning groups.
2: Exactly, exactly.
1: So so how big was this bias? What kind of magnitude are we talking about?
2: What I can tell you is that when you uh, compare geographic regions in the United States and ask the question what is the bias associated with the intensity with which patients are observed. And we use as a measure of that the physician visit rate, which varies, believe it or not, over threefold, or twofold, rather, among these regions. If we do that, then we ask the question, do people who live in high-visit regions with lots of diagnoses live longer than those who are in the opposite end of the spectrum? And the answer is if all you do is age and sex and race adjustment, No, they're in fact the same. But then if you go ahead and adjust for illness in addition to age, sex, and race, using these diagnoses that are in the claims data, suddenly you see a 20% difference in mortality rates uh, between these two regions, which is simply implausible. So I would say that is a pretty good estimate of the kind of bias that we get in the distribution of, of physician visits and claims data.
1: You've shown how this is a problem for comparing hospitals and paying providers. Um, but I mean, what does this actually mean for patients? Because we know that overdiagnosis can be very harmful. Um, so, does this tell us anything in terms of that?
2: The behavior is, is definitely associated with harm. If one is delivering more care and that care basically isn't paying off in terms of benefits, and there's risks associated with care, then high-intensity care is questioned. In other words, in this country, are the patients living in, say, Miami, Florida, which is one of our highest-intensity systems, who appear much thicker in the claims data, who Mm -hmm. are being paid more for on a per capita basis because of the adjustment process, do they do better or worse than patients in, say, Seattle or Minneapolis, where uh, there is much less service provided, and uh, where the uh, population, by virtue of the adjustment process appears to be much healthier. when in fact, what uh, what we've shown in this paper is that that a major part of the of the care intensity is associated simply with the visit rates and the amount of care provided and is uncorrelated with uh, the underlying question about whether people are sicker in one mm. region or another. Let's take it one step further. And now the question is about overuse. Are the patients in Miami overusing care relative to the patients in Seattle? And here the question is, well, if you go ahead then and use the risk adjusters that we're talking about, which come from the claims data, to adjust for illness, so you can answer the question, are people in Miami uh, living longer and healthier by virtue of the care they're consuming? And the answer seems to be yes, because they're so much sicker. But in fact, they aren't that sick. On an adjusted basis, uh, the mortality rates are pretty much the same between these regions. On an age, sex, and race adjusted basis, they're pretty much the same. But when you uh, adjust for illness, it looks like the Miami system is much better because its patients are much sicker and and its mortality rates turn out to be quite low
1: Mm.
2: once they're adjusted.
1: Mm.
2: Miami is clearly overusing care compared to Seattle.
1: How do you think this understanding helps us with variation then? This is obviously something that um, you're very involved with, having put together the, the Dartmouth Atlas of Variation.
2: Well, it, it gets us um, beyond the conflict, the methodologic conflict about risk adjustment. At least it should. If one is understanding the, the problem of risk adjustment, it's clear that very little of the variation can be explained by illness. And so that's why this is a key project, a key, mm-hmm. a key issue. We've known for years that the amount of care delivered uh, in a community or in a or by a hospital on its assigned population uh, is affected by the capacity of the system to produce care. Uh, so if you have more hospital beds and more physicians in one ar- area than you have in another, you get more care and you get more hospitalizations and you get more costs. What we're now saying in addition to that is that, The intensity with which one encounters physicians creates illness in the sense that patients who are in these high-intensity regions appear sicker. We have adjustments then made for the payment mechanisms so they get more money. They can then go out and hire more doctors, build more hospital beds. And so this is part of this dynamic that's creating variation. The... The way the system works, particularly in the United States, doing more creates more diagnoses and creates more money to hire more doctors to do more, etc, etc, etc.
1: Thanks there to John Wemberg. This week sees the launch of our Too Much Medicine campaign, designed to raise awareness and help tackle harmful overdiagnosis. If you'd like more on the issue and the campaign, there's a link from our homepage. That's all for this edition. Next week we'll be reporting from the Nuffield Trust, so join us then.
0: For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.